coincidence, and maybe not as a coincidence, that the subject for the day is one that Satan would not be very happy with. Uh, Richard wrote an article some years ago, I think it was the spring of 96, that he was going to put in the forerunner about this particular subject and began to have demon attacks on he and his family. Uh, and they decided that maybe we were despising a certain group of people and uh, not to print it at that particular time. And the demon attack stopped not too long after that. And then I come up with the same subject in the, just in the normal course of this series, and we can't get where we're supposed to go. <laughs> so it makes me wonder a little bit if that's just coincidence or if the prince of the power of the air is trying to prevent and hinder. But uh, God is stronger, so we will talk about this today anyway. Let's start with the question, who are those people in Pasadena who have destroyed the church? God says the destruction is at his behest and direction. We've seen that proved many, many times in the scriptures. But who is he used to do it? Are there any indications in the Bible? Where should we first look to find clues? Who is Israel's oldest enemy? Today in the series on the Minor Prophets and the New Testament Church, which we will continue, we come to the book of Obadiah. Now in brief summary, in Hosea we saw the harlotry of the church plainly laid out in front of us, as well as our own personal harlotry and not being as close to God as we should be. In the book of Joel, we saw the declaration of God as sovereign of the universe and how he is soon to prove his point uh, with events in the world and the soon coming day of the Lord. In Amos, just two weeks ago, we saw the judgments against Israel's enemies, followed by the judgments on the whole house of Israel and therefore on the whole church as a type of Israel. <laughs> We saw also that the famine, the blight, the mildew that has already been sent on the church has not brought the return to God which he seeks. Therefore, he says, prepare to meet that he will now send total destruction and total famine on the church. Only a remnant will be preserved. The time frame, I don't know, but that is the way he lays out the scenario. Also in that book, he introduces the two witnesses as his plumb line to rise in Jacob, to measure the uprightness of the remnant, and to measure what is left of the church. And we will see this theme increase in prominence and emphasis as we move on through the Minor Prophets. So next in the sequence comes the book of Obadiah. Why? Because it describes an enemy rising above Israel, that is, the church first, and then physical Israel. We have just seen in Amos that the church will be decimated. Perhaps Obadiah, Obadiah gives, and will give, more clues as to how and who will be involved in this destruction. Because it follows right on the heels of God saying the destruction is going to come. So, who is Israel's oldest human enemy? Let's go to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah simply means the servant of God, or servant of God. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So this book concerns Edom. Who is Edom? 
Well, well, it's elementary, my dear Watson. Let's go back to Genesis 36. That one's laid out very easily for us. Genesis 36, and then verse 1. Now, these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these are their dukes. Verse 43. These be the dukes of Edom, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. I wonder if God wants this emphasized and understood. Over and over, he mentions it, and there are several other scriptures that mention it as well, but we won't go to those for sake of time. But we need to get the point, apparently. Now, so we know who Edom is. They are the offspring of Esau. Let's go to Genesis 25 and pick the story up here. Get some background on this subject before we go further into uh, the book of Obadiah. Genesis 25. Now, we're somewhat familiar with this story, I'm sure, of Jacob and Esau, who were twin brothers, uh, born to Isaac and Rebekah, and how Esau was to reserve, receive the birthright, being the firstborn, but sold that birthright very cheaply. Let's pick it up in verse 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. So apparently he was light-complexioned, had red hair all over him, uh, very hairy. They called his name Esau, which means hairy. Uh, we have that name today. We spell it a little different. <laughs> And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. So we find something about this now. If we're going to identify these people, Esau will be light-complexioned, essentially, Caucasian. He was hairy, but we will see also, I think, here... Uh, that he married quite a few different women and did it in rebellion against his parents. Maybe we won't turn to that, but it said he married them because he knew it would irritate uh, Isaac and Rebekah. A very stubborn, rebellious streak in Esau. The boys grew. Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now that gives you another clue to Esau's character. He was apparently very stealthy, very cunning. He could hide very well uh, because that's what it takes to be a good hunter and spring on the prey, the game, and kill it very quickly. Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. He liked deer meat. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sought pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with that same red cottage, for I am faint. There was his name called Edom. Uh, check the commentaries, and it says that it says that it, it doubles the red here. Red, red. His name was given partly because he was hairy and red. And secondarily, his name was emphasized, as Esau, because he sold his birthright for some red soup. His very name throughout history will be tied to those two things. 
as a constant reminder of how cheaply he is sold out, as a constant bitterness to him and to his descendants when they would see the wealth that Jacob's heirs would receive, they would be reminded of that little bowl of soup and the bitterness that comes from it by their very name, never to get away from it. And Jacob said, Sell me this your day, your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. What profit shall his birthright do me? I'm going to die from hunger. Uh, I don't need a birthright. So he despised his birthright, as it says in verse 34. Now let's go to Genesis 27. And pick up the blessing. You know that most of the blessings were given to Jacob. But Jacob received these through subtlety and cunning of his own, through deceit and lying and acting. So when Esau came in to receive his blessing, there wasn't a whole lot left. And I won't go through Jacob's for sake of time, because Edom or Esau is the subject here. So let's pick it up in verse 38. See what Isaac said to Esau and how this plays out through history. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? It sounds like you've given everything to Jacob. Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. Indicating great wealth, that he would always be around the money, the fat of the earth, the heavy dew, the good, the good things, in other words. And by your sword shall you live. So he would be a warmonger. And shall serve your brother. Now this must have really galled Esau here. And it shall come to pass, when you shall have the dominion, that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. So he would live in subservience to Jacob, underneath Jacob, not as prominent as Jacob, for an, un an unspecified amount of time, but at some point, that yoke would be broken off of his neck, and he would dominate Jacob. Well, these are things that are slated to happen as a result of what Isaac said. Now, what was Esau's reaction? Verse 41. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him, and Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, then will I slay my brother Jacob. So Esau would continually have hatred and murder in his heart toward Jacob. Throughout history, the Edomites would have this characteristic and would be cunningly, hidingly, stealthily waiting to destroy Jacob at any opportunity. Nice way to live. Jacob was getting some of back of what he had dished out. He would live in a certain amount of fear, a certain amount of trepidation throughout the rest of his life. You remember the circumstance where he saw Esau coming, and he was fearful, and he sent all kinds of gifts to Esau to hope that he would placate him. But apparently it wasn't a good time for Esau to attack, and he got away with that one, or God preserved him. Uh, and he was not killed at that point. But that perpetual hatred remained there. 
Amos 1.11, which we read just last week, I'm sure. I know we went through it. Uh, I'll run back and read that one right quick. Amos 1 and verse 11. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. No forgiveness, no quarter, no pity whatsoever would Edom have on the descendants of Jacob when they had an opportunity to kill them. Ezekiel 35.5, I'll turn back there as well, Ezekiel 35, and verse 5, speaking of Edom and Mount Seir, uh, Mount Seir being part of the area of Edom down south of uh, the, the, Black sea, uh, the Dead Sea, verse 5, because you have had a perpetual hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity and the time that their iniquity had an end, then he pronounces more curse on him and says he will have perpetual desolations in verse 9. So this is undying. Back in Hebrews 12, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fall of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The animosity, the hate, the rebellion was so deep that even though he wanted to change his attitude, it was beyond his capacity. Once bitterness enters, it is very, very hard to overcome it. The mind becomes twisted. So his unending bitterness, malice, hatred, vengeance, the feeling of having been treated unfairly, treated wrongly, is a perpetual attitude of the Edomite. Wherever the Edomite is today, he will have these attitudes. Just as God could, in Genesis 49, tell us, what the attitudes of the various tribes of Israel would be by the attitudes of their fathers. Those characteristics would be passed down genetically from generation to generation, even though sometimes Israelites would not even know who they are, as they don't today. They would still carry the characteristics of Reuben or of Manasseh or of Gad or Asher or whoever. And the same is true of the Edomite. He will have that same hatred for Jacob. Now, here's the problem. It's not that easy to see the Edomites' real attitude. It's not easy to identify them. Their attitudes are kept carefully under wraps. Remember again that Esau was a hunter. He was stealthy. He was cunning, camouflaged, hidden, stalking his prey carefully, and striking from the shadows. That's the way the Edomites are today. That hatred remains wherever they are. But it's hard to discern. We'll see that a little bit more later in Obadiah. Well, the book of Obadiah, some commentators feel, was written right after the fall of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore describes the atrocities of Edom against Judah at that time. 
Others, including Jerome, say he was contemporary with Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and that this mistreatment was in other battles with Judah and Israel, not at the fall uh, of, of Judah at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. I tend to think that Jerome is probably right, because the message comes right in line with Hosea, Joel, and Amos, with whom Obadiah was contemporary. Many commentators feel that the pronouncement of death to all Edomites, which you will find in Obadiah 18 when we get down there, has already occurred. That Edom was completely absorbed into Judah and disappeared completely from the scene. Now I'll read you some quotes very quickly here uh, that indicate that attitude from some of the commentators. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Uh, they were then incorporated with the Jewish nation. The Jewish Encyclopedia. Uh, wait a minute. Oh, Encyclopedia Judaica uh, is the first one. In the days of John Hyrcanus, into the second century BCE, the Edomites became a section of the Jewish people. So they began to intermarry and to incorporate themselves into Judah. This is the new standard Jewish Encyclopedia. From then on, they constituted a part of the Jewish people, Herod being one of their descendants. Livius Josephus, Hyrcanus subdued all the Edomians, that was the Roman name for uh, the Edomites, and permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. So they basically, as far as the historians and commentators are concerned, disappeared from view and became Jews entirely. Now we will find through the scriptures very clearly that this is not so. They did meld with and merge with the Jews to one degree or another, but they do remain a distinct people today. For instance, the setting of Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah is in time. It has to do with the day of the Lord. You see that all through Joel. You see it in Amos. And you see it at the, toward the end of the book of Obadiah. So the time setting is now. And the book is written about Edom. So they cannot have disappeared. They still have to be viable as a people today. They are a destroyer of Jacob. Now, let, I'll go back there. Uh, let's see Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. So they have reached out to cut off Jacob, and it is going to come back on them at the time of the day of the Lord. Now, can we trace them through history then and identify them today? Since the historians say they were basically absorbed into Judah, how can we determine where they are? Let's go to Obadiah, the beginning of the book again, where he says, reiterating, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, Arise you, and let us rise up against her in battle. So there will come a time when someone will come against Edom to do battle. But what does God say about them? 
Behold, I have made you small among the heathen. You are greatly despised. So these people, the Edomites, are going to be a despised people. Now we're going to add some things on top of things here and see if we can begin to come up with where these people might be today. Now this may indicate that they also are not great in number, small among the heathen, although there's a colon there that says you are greatly despised, it may more mean you are small in the eyes of the heathen in terms of uh, attitude toward. So we saw in Genesis 25 a red complexion, light-skinned, red-headed, hairy man who married uh, Canaanite women and other women, so all Edomites will not be red-headed just as all Jews and uh, peoples of Israel are not red-headed. There is a wide range of hair color and eye color. But remember, Esau is a full brother of Jacob, so he is essentially indistinguishable from modern Jacob today. Take the nations of Western Europe and the United States, and an Edomite has the same genetic background as a Jacobite. Therefore, walking down the street, you wouldn't know the difference. That makes it hard. But it nails it down that they're not Chinese or Indians or Africans. They are among Jacob and look like Jacobites, wherever they are. So they are Caucasian. And greatly despised. So we look for a despised white race. Someone that nobody likes, for the most part. Begin putting this together in your mind. Who who will you think of now as we add clue after clue, clue? Verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you. They are also a very proud people. You that dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that says in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Now the area of Edom anciently was south of the Dead Sea, uh, part of Jordan, uh, the escarpment including Petra, and that general area, about 100 miles long, was the land of Edom. But they moved. They wanted to be in Jerusalem and Israel, and later on we'll find that they also migrated north, a great number of them. So we find a despised white people who are proud, wealthy, that is in the bad places, and perhaps not really great in numbers. Now let's go to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. And I want verse 7 here. Psalm 137, 7. Now this is a, this whole psalm is a song that we sing, page 103 in the book, on a fairly regular basis about the, the Jews in captivity in Babylon. And uh, we think this is all about Babylon, but... Maybe it's not. Verse 7. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Burn it, burn it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who are you to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewards you as you have served us. So Edom is listed as a daughter of Babylon, just like the daughter of Zion is a daughter of the church. So they are tied inextricably together with Babylon and the Babylonian system. And wherever Babylon is today then, the daughter of Edom will be there. 
Therefore, they're going to be involved with the beast power, the Babylonian system, as it comes against Jacob. Wherever you find anyone ready to destroy Jacob, the nations of Western Israel, I mean of Western Europe and the United States, uh, and all the children of Israel, wherever they might be, you're going to find an Edomite presence. Because they have always hung right around Jacob, looking for opportunities to destroy, to seize, to get their birthright back. So, we look for a despised white people who are proud, wealthy, allied with Babylon, and skulking around looking for a way to destroy Jacob. The identification gets a little better. Now, back to Obadiah. He might put a finger there or something. We'll be going back and forth to it all through. Verse 4, Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, thence will I bring you down, says the Lord. These people feel, whoever they are, that they are impervious. What gives people that kind of confidence in this world today? People who are well off. People who think they are in control. People who control money feel secure and proud of that money because today, in this society, money is power. Not to us, but to this world. Verses 5 and 6 are poorly translated in the King James. I'll read them. It says, If thieves come to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes, some gleaning? What he's saying, if thieves, if thieves came, would they not leave a certain amount and take what they most desired? Or if they were grape gatherers and they came to you, would they not take a certain amount of grapes and leave some for others? But he says, that's not the way it's going to be with you, Edom. Uh, he says, I'm going to bring you down. Now notice verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? So these are people who live in the shadows. They are people who are not overtly open in the public. But he says, I am going to seek all your treasures out. I'm not going to leave any gleanings. I'm not going to be like a thief who carries all he can and leaves what he can't carry. I'm going to find it all so they will come to ultimate ruin. But it also shows again what we've already talked about, how Esau hides in the shadows, controls money, and is there. Now, I haven't drawn any conclusions so far as to who these people might be because in doing so we will probably find a certain amount of opposition so I'm giving you clues from the Bible to set the stage. Lamentations 4 uh, adds a little bit to this story that we just read in verses 5 and 6, especially 6. Uh, let's go back to Lamentations. As you know, this book has a great deal to do with the church today as well as the physical Israel. Verse 21 of Lamentations 4. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwell in the land of Uz. The cup also shall pass through you. You shall be drunken and shall make yourself naked. They're going to make some mistakes that is going to reveal who they are. 
keep that in mind as we get on down a little later. And we're going to see some things that have happened that have made it obvious who some people are. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. So he's linking the daughter of Edom with the daughter of Zion, the church here. That they are going to be aware of and interlap, overlap with each other. He will no more carry you away into captivity. He will visit your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover your sins. So just as he says in verse 6 of Obadiah, God is going to find them out. Though they are hard to find, and they are hidden. Uh, let's see that again a little bit in Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49, verse 10. It's a whole chapter about Ammon and Edom. Uh, another, well, verse 7, it starts concerning Edom. But he says in verse 10, I have made Esau heir. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spotted, and his brethren, and his neighbors, and he is not, or will not be. So God is going to make it obvious who Edom is and what their role is in the end time. Now let's go back to Obadiah for a moment in verse 7. All the men of your confederacy, that's confederacy is used in the King James, but conspiracy, I think, in the New King James is the word that they use. Perhaps not, but it's the same. The word is the same. Alliance, confederacy, conspiracy is all one. All the men of your conspiracy have brought you even to the border. The men that were at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They that eat your bread, see, these people have plenty, and they have enough to give to others. And in this alliance, they have provided bread and money, have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. So there is going to be a double cross of the people of Edom by those that they are allied with. Remember the scriptures about the beast and how it will be of iron and miry clay, that it will not cleave together, but will be a loose organization that will turn on itself. Gives you a little bit of a clue here, because the beast is coming against who, basically? Going to destroy Jacob. And therefore the Edomites, by these scriptures, have to be there. Because it says they will always be around trying to destroy Jacob, and they're not going to miss this opportunity. Psalm 83. Let's see how it links together here. Psalm 83, speaking of a conspiracy. Keep not your silence, O God. Hold not your peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. So there's going to be a conspiracy against those people of God who are a remnant who will be hid. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be, may be no more in remembrance. That sounds like Esau, doesn't it? For they have consulted together with one consent. They have conspired together to destroy Jacob. They are confederate against you, the tabernacles whose name first of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab, and the Hagarenes, Gebal, and Ammon, and some of the 
the inhabitants of Tyre, some of the traditional enemies of Israel. Asher also has joined with them, and they have helped the children of Lot. So it's speaking of the end time, and says Edom will be a part of the great conspiracy to destroy Great Britain, the United States, and the rest of the tribes of Israel. There are others which show that this conspiracy has continued through the history of Israel. I'm not going to go to them for sake of time, but I will uh, list some of them for you if you want to write them down and maybe look at them later as more backup. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Numbers 20, 14 through 21. Numbers 20, 14 through 21. Judges 3, 1 to 3, 6, 3, and verse 33, and chapter 10, verse 12. Judges 3, 1 through 3, 6, 3, verse 33, and chapter 10, verse 12. First Samuel 30, 1 through 20. First Samuel 30, 1 through 20. Those all show conspiracies against Israel by Edom. I'll quote this one very quickly as well. Here's Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who are the anointed of the Lord? His church. And ultimately physical Israel as well. Isaiah 8, I won't turn to, but it talks of a great conspiracy at the end right there in the context of God's church and God's people and tells us not to fear them, but fear God. And Psalm 83 shows who some of the conspirators will be. Now, we've already seen Edom allied with Babylon, the beast power led by Germany. So there's a connection between the leaders of the beast, the Germans, the Assyrians, and the Edomites. That's an interesting connection to make. We'll see a little more later on. Now, there's, there are a lot of scriptures that connect Edom with the beast at the end. I'll give you a few of those. I won't turn to them for sake of time, but you can connect, make these connections yourself. Joel 3, 14 and 19. Joel 3, 14 and 19. Jeremiah 25, 15, and 21. Jeremiah 25, 15, and 21. Notice that these are end-time prophecies. So Edom has not been absorbed completely into Judaism to the point that they are no longer distinguishable. Isaiah 34, 5 through 8. Isaiah 34, 5 through 8. Uh, Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. 63, 1 through 6. Ezekiel 25. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14, and 35, 1 through 15. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 35, 1 through 15. Now I'm going to go back to the book of Obadiah again, and verse 7. Well, we already covered that, really, uh, showing how they'll be betrayed by their allies. Now let's go to verse 8. Shall I not... In that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the Mount of Esau. So the Edomites are also known, and have a reputation of being, men of wisdom and understanding. 
They're looked upon as fairly smart people. Despised, but pretty smart. Known for wisdom and understanding. Perhaps Proverbs would be a good word to use there, as we shall see. Now, with this much information, let's look for these people. The commentaries and historians, as we've said, make note of their assimilation into Judah at every opportunity. They're always wanting to hide behind Judah's uh, apron strings. Now, in Christ's day, Herod was an Edomite that married into Judah. His children were half-Jews and half-Edomites. I, I always wondered, remember that expression that Christ used when he referred to Herod, and he says, go tell that fox. And I always was curious about that. Why did he call Herod a fox? It sounds kind of like a nickname, perhaps an epithet, if you look at it that way. Here he was a king. Why did he call him a fox? Well, the Edomites have the nickname of foxes, and that gives us a clue. I'm going to go back to uh, Lamentations again. Lamentations 4 and verse 22. The punishment of your ignorance. No, let's see. I, I want to go on back. Uh, well, starting there, it talks about uh, the daughter of Edom that we read about and how Edom will dis have their sins discovered. But they've been enemies of Jacob. Now notice verse 18 of chapter 5. Because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. And this is in the context of Edom, walking over Israel. So it was a very common appellation that was given to Edom. Christ knew that those who were listening to him would know who he was talking about when he said, go tell that fox. Because the Edomites were known as foxes. There again you see the slyness, the cunningness, the hiding, the hunting at night, the camouflage, and the foxes were predators. We'll see another scripture on this a little later on that ties directly with the church. Now, Herod acted in typical Edomite fashion and tried to kill Jesus Christ. Had all the boy babies killed. So the hatred and animosity was still there. Now, several historians place Esau later, not early in their history, when they prevented Moses and the Israelites from coming through the land of Idumea or Mount Seir or the Dead Sea area and Petra, made them go all the way around, but later on they moved. And the historians place them as dwelling in present-day Turkey. Uh, you've heard of the Ottoman Empire, Teman, and Teman was a name given to Edom in the Bible. So the Ottoman Empire was, was uh, Edomite. And apparently, uh, some Edomites did settle in Turkey. Not all of the people in Turkey apparently are Edomites, but a percentage of them are. But there was another group of Edomites north of the Caucasians, or north of modern Turkey, right there in southern Russia as we would know it today. And Israel... In the time of trouble in Palestine, it migrated to Asia. This can be documented by a lot of books. The best I know of is Stephen Collins' uh, The Ten Lost Tribes Found, where he details very carefully how Israel 
uh, spread through Asia and Europe, even as far uh, east as India. So Israel would spread up there, and the Edomites would be where then? They would be following Israel, because they had this perpetual hatred and wanted to be where they were so that they might find opportunity to destroy them and regain their birthright. So I'm not going into profane history that much in bringing this out, but to show from the Bible the characteristics of Edom and what he would do with Jacob, that he would always hang around looking for an opportunity like a fox in a hen house, waiting for the lights in the house to go out so that he can get into the hens. That is Edomites, or the Edomites' approach. Well, this group of people in the Caucasus was known as the Khazars. And an interesting fact of history, this is outlined in a book called The Thirteenth Tribe, and they called Edom the Thirteenth Tribe because they were always around Israel. Wherever Israel went, this tribe of people went. Kind of like a, uh, a bird on the back of a giraffe. He's always with the giraffe because there's where the insects are that he can peck away at. Wherever you find a giraffe, you'll find those particular birds. Now, it was an interesting thing that occurred here because, remember, Edomites like to be hid. And the king of the Khazars converted to Judaism. And all his people converted to Judaism. Therefore, it was hard to know who was a Khazar and who was a Jew because they all kept the same doctrines, followed the same traditions of the fathers. So they tried to hide again behind the skirts of the Jew. And they came to be known as Ashkenazi Jews. You have the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews. Now there's a little, perhaps, confusion here. Uh, Steve Collins did a tremendous job of following Israel uh, through the name of Isaac and other ways through history. Uh, in his book, though, he says that the Ashkenazis are of Isaac, not of Edom. And he uses this as his proof, that the word Ashak or Yishak is of Isaac. And I have no problem with that. And here's the reason I have no problem with that. Esau had just as much right to the name of Isaac as did Jacob. They were full brothers, same mother, everything, twins in fact. So Esau could take the name of his father Isaac just as readily as could Jacob. Notice First Chronicles 136. First Chronicles 136. I'll turn back there and read this one to you. First Chronicles 1. Well, I'll begin in verse 35. The sons of Esau, Eliphaz, Reuel, and Jeush, uh, and two more there, but let's go on down. The sons of Eliphaz, who was one of the sons of Esau, Teman, there's your Ottoman Empire, and Omar, Zephi, and Gatam, Kenaz, and Timna and Amalek. Kenaz, Ashkenaz, he. So, the Khazars, apparently, who came to be known as Ashkenazis, were of Isaac first, as a prefix. 
they were of Kenaz, the grandson of Esau, secondly. So Isaac and Kenaz are incorporated in the name. That way they can say, we are of Isaac. We have a right to the birthright. We were treated unfairly. But they were also known through Kenaz, so they would be able to identify who they are as a son of Esau. I think it can be clearly demonstrated that the Ashkenazi Jews are part Edomite and part Jewish. Now the rub comes into identifying who is who because they look a lot alike and they keep the same doctrines, essentially. Have the same beliefs. So how do you tell a Jew from an Edomite? Partly by the fruits. Now what happened to these Khazars? These Russian Jews, these Russian Edomite Jews, many of them later migrated to Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany, Poland, and so on, and some even ultimately to the United States, Israel, and other places, especially in World War II. And they are distinct from the Sephardic Jews. But they mingled, and it's hard to tell who is a Jew and who is an Edomite today. I submit to you that in Eastern Europe and in New York and on the beaches of Miami, you have Jews and Edomites lying side by side, putting their suntan lotion oil on, and they don't know who they are, whether they are Edomite or Jewish. Although I believe that somewhere on the top layers of these people, the layers of influence, they do know. Now, much of the hatred that is aimed at the Jews today may be aimed at Edomites in disguise. The Zionist hatred that is aimed at the Jews may be more because of the actions of the Edomite than because of the actions of the Jew. People just label them all Jews and don't know the difference. And that becomes a problem. So if you say anything about it, you're a Jew-baiter or a Jew-hater, and you might not even be hating the right people if you're supposed to hate at all. That's a, that's a different subject. Now, you can read the conspiracy books if you wish. For much of it is likely true. There are a lot of Zionist and, and hatred books against the Jews written because of their, their banking and their control of wealth and so on. But when you read them, maybe you should insert the word Edomite instead of Jew very frequently in some of those books. Everything in those books probably is not true, but I think a lot of it is. Now, it is interesting, and it's no secret, that Hitler had some, quote-unquote, Jews placed highly in his life that were not killed. High officers that we would consider Jewish. Now, could he have known the difference between Edomites and Jews? Remember, the Assyrian, or Germany, is the other principal enemy of Jacob will come as the countries from the north and head the beast power. We've already seen Edom will be associated or confederated in the conspiracy as the daughter of Babylon, the beast power. Now another interesting thing about the word Ashkenazi. Look at the suffix. Nazi. Ashkenazi. Isaac, Esau, Turkinaz, and Nazi. 
I don't know where Hitler came up with the word Nazi. But is it only coincidental that it is the last four letters of the word Ashkenazi? Ashkenazi. Don't know that I could prove that, but it looks awfully suspicious. Now, many books have been written about the Jewish conspiracy of European and American bankers. The Rothschild family is singled out as one of the worst of the conspiring banking families and one of the worst hated, despised. Interestingly, the, the Rothschilds were not originally named Rothschild, but were named Bauer. And they changed their name to Rothschild, which means red badge or red shield. That red follows all the way through. Now, why would they name themselves that unless they had a knowledge of who they might be? They reportedly began the Zionist movement against the Jews in the 1890s. That fits, doesn't it? Because there they were, Edomites, who probably recognized their heritage on that level, and they started the Zionist movement to destroy Jews. Now, some of these European bankers also financed Hitler in World War II to destroy Jacob. So remembering our history lesson from the Bible, these Edomites would have been there in World War II doing everything they could to help destroy Brother Jacob. It is a perpetual hatred. Another point to consider. Edom referred to its leaders or chiefs as dukes. Genesis 36. And European royalty, you find the term dukes as one of the positions. Where did it come from? Remember, the Edomites intermarried with the Jews. And they wormed their way into the fat places. And they are despised. So there's been Jewish intermarriage in the royalty of Europe. There's only one place in the Bible that the term Duke is, or the word for the term Duke is used uh, in a place referring to anyone, directly to anyone other than Edom. And that's in Zechariah 12, 5, and 6. The word there is translated governors of Judah. But it's the same word as Dukes. But the carryover could be there. See, the dukes of Edom, and then when they intermarried into the Jewish royalty, and therefore uh, the word duke would appear in Jewish royalty. Of the house of Hanover of Germany, it is particularly polluted, apparently. The house of Stuart in England, not so much, at least from what I've read. All right, there's much more. But here we have a white, Caucasian, full brother of Jacob, mingled with Jacob, allied as financiers of Hitler, hidden behind bank doors, hard to discern, very wealthy, and with a predisposition to destroy Jacob, and very proud of their position. They are known for Jewish proverbs, or as wise and understanding men in banking, in military, as advisors of presidents, mixed in with the royalty of Europe, very despised, the word Jew, as an epithet to many, many people. They think they hate the Jews, although Christ said the Jews would be hated as well because of what they did to him. But Edom is also despised of all the heathen. And nobody knows who they are. They're sly, they're crafty, they're stealthy, they're hidden, but always waiting to destroy Jacob.
Now think about it. By a process of elimination of peoples that you know in the world around Europe and America, who fits the description of all these scriptures that we've seen? I can think of none who have used Judah as a cloak for their mischief other than the Edomites. There's no one that even comes close that's hanging around Jacob that I know of. So on the world scene, there are major conspirators bound and determined to murder Jacob at the time near the day of the Lord, Obadiah 15. Here's another expression. Those who say they are Jews and are not. What does that mean? Some of them probably know who they are, such as the Rothschilds. But the average man on the street probably doesn't know. Here's another interesting thought. I have read in a book that Jews, quote-unquote, from New York, went to Russia, took Russian names, and conducted Stalin's purge for him, killed millions of people, then returned to New York, taking back their Yiddish names. Here again, look at Russia. Red Russia. With a red symbol for their armies and their military might. Question, was Russia ruled by Edomites bent on destroying Jacob? All through the Cold War, that threat was there. They wanted so mightily to bury us, as Khrushchev said. But because of fear, they did not drop the bombs. They feared Jacob's power. But it makes you wonder. That red symbol is there. The Russian people may or may not be Edomites, so the Russian Jews through Ashkenazi, perhaps in part are. Now, let's draw this down to spiritual Jacob, the church. Jacob represents all the tribes, that is, the whole church. And we've already quoted this. It's a curious scripture in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia would deal with people who say they are Jews and are not. Now, I wondered about that through all the years that we consider ourselves the Philadelphian era under Herbert Armstrong. And the only interpretation I could put on it at the time was that there are those who say they're converted, that they're spiritual Jews, but they're not. They're tares or rebels or whatever that might be among us, and they're not really converted. Now, I'm sure there is that application. Some come to God's church and say they are converted, but they're not. Yet Obadiah adds another dimension to this. Let's see it in Obadiah 16. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, speaking of Edom, where is God's holy mountain today? His church, Mount Zion. Zion is the church. Obadiah 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. Well, that's not talking about the people of Jacob in New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and London. It is speaking of God's righteous, converted, holy people. So Edomites have been on God's holy mountain, claiming to be Jews, claiming to be converted, but not. They're tied very closely here to the church and to the end-time church of Philadelphia. Now let's go back to uh, Lamentations 4 again. I've, I've referred to this one several times because there's so much in it. 
Uh, you don't have to turn back if you don't want. You've seen it, seen that it's there. Um, Lamentations 4, verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall pass through to you. You shall be drunken and made naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O Zion. Uh, they won't be able to hurt you anymore. Again, verse 18. Because of the mountains of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk on it. Obadiah 11. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, the church, or Jacob as well, in a physical, as a physical nation, is coming on them as well. And you were one of them. You were one of the ones that tried to destroy Jerusalem, the church. But you should not have looked on the day of your brother, in the day that he became a stranger, Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Now I have compared Judah to the split off of worldwide today. Are the Edomites going to have something to do with the destruction of Judah? Because we've already seen in other scriptures that the church is coming down, including Judah. Very interesting. Does this remind you of Revelation 12? Let's continue for a moment here. Uh, the end of verse 12 of Obadiah. You rejoice over the children of, of Judah in the day of their destruction, neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. This is leading up to the day of the Lord. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress, for the day of the Lord is near. So the day of distress upon the church is when Edom gets involved again. Remember Revelation 12:14, about when the church flees to a place of safety. Satan sends a flood to try to destroy the church, to cut it off at the pass, not to let it get there. And God sends a flood to destroy that enemy. All right, in that light, let's go back then to the Song of Songs. Song of Songs, chapter 2. And beginning down in verse 14. I think we're all pretty aware that the Song of Songs is very likely talking about Christ and his bride. Verse 14. O oh, my dove that are in the clefts of the rock. So Christ is going to hide his people in the clefts of the rock, just as Edom dwelt in the clefts of the rock. In the secret places of the stairs, let me see your countenance, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice, and your countenance is comely. Catch the foxes, capture the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. So the vineyard of God has tender grapes are converted people who are growing into being God. And the foxes come into the vineyard and destroy or eat the little grapes. So the Edomite fox will be there to eat up the church members, to try to destroy spiritual Jacob. Now let's 
go to Malachi 1. This, again, is an end-time book. In fact, it is the summary book of the Minor Prophets, and in that sense, a summary of the Old Testament as well. Malachi 1. Now, we've all gone to Malachi 1 and read about the evil ministry in the end time. But have we noticed the beginning of this chapter? The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, or to Jacob, Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, where have you loved us? We, we're in trouble down here, speaking as a church right now, and Israel will say it when they go into captivity as well as a nation. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau. He hated that attitude of arrogance and pride, of murder that Esau had. I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom says, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. That they shall call them the edges or the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the borders of Israel, the edges of the church. Now he's talking about Edom here being hated and trying to build up, but God says he will destroy. What's happening in Pasadena? They're trying to build the church up into a great evangelical Protestant organization. But God says he will destroy. Now what are the characteristics? What are the things that bring them out of hiding? Doctrine, verse 7. You offer polluted bread upon my altar. You say, where have we polluted you? And that you say the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And it goes on and down and talks about how God has no pleasure in what is going on there in his altar. Now let's, exam let's examine for a few moments what happened in Pasadena. Here's a name for you. Stan Rader. Sneaked in during the 1950s. Got hold of the purse strings as an accountant. Stayed in the background. Wore dark glasses. Hid. Claimed to be a Jew. But they may not have been. Worked his way into the ministry as an evangelist. Put his name on many corporations. Took the church for many millions of dollars. In my opinion, he may have engineered the second marriage of Herbert Armstrong with the idea of a total takeover through the wife. In my opinion, he may have conspired with Jewish judges to destroy the church with a state takeover and put himself in charge. Raider, Redder, I looked his name up. It has Ashkenazi Jewish derivation. There's an Edomite, very likely an Edomite, right in God's church, hiding and taking money. His secrets were uncovered. Lamentations 4.21. He almost destroyed the church. I was in a meeting with Herbert Armstrong in 1981, and I mentioned to him that the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2 stood in the church, not in the Vatican, and put himself ahead of God. At that time, he was beginning to understand where Stan was coming from. He could not hide from him anymore. He said, maybe that man is Stan Rader. There was one other man in the room beside Mr. Armstrong and myself at that meeting. Mr. Armstrong said, 
These men cannot replace me. And he named a bunch of evangelists. One of those, he said, who could not replace him was in the room with us. His name was Joseph Dekach. He can't do it, he said. And Joe was sitting there. When Joe took over, what did he do? He ignored the plea of Herbert Armstrong to get the church ready. Instead, he set out on a course parallel to Malachi 1, offering polluted doctrine on the altar. He put his ideas and his paganism ahead of God. He sacrificed the swine of false doctrine on the altar in Pasadena with his son and henchmen of his age group, the son's age group. They thought they would improve the church by taking it into the Babylon and Egypt doctrinally, carrying Jacob, spiritual Jacob, away captive. I looked up the word Tkach, the name. He always thought he was a Ukrainian. He has an Ashkenazi Jewish name, Tkach. He apparently was a Russian Jew. Now, as a sidebar, there are several top officers in Worldwide Church of God with Assyrian names, among the top five or six in their organization. Assyrians and Edomites apparently allied together to destroy the temple of God, spiritual Jacob. Takat Senior often mentioned his name means weaver. He thought he was weaving righteousness in the church. Let's go back to Isaiah 59. We'll wrap this up here pretty quickly. Isaiah 59, I want to use this one uh, last major scripture and see if you think this fits. Isaiah 59, 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood, the spiritual blood of God's people, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. Oh, we're not going to change anything, as they changed it. Your tongue has muttered perverseness, none calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. No truth anymore. Paganism. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Now notice this. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. There's a weaver for you. He that eats of their eggs dies. You stay in worldwide, you die spiritually. And that which is crushed breaks out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. God said he would make them bare in Lamentations 4, and that they would make mistakes that would reveal them. They're revealed as pagans, as non-Christians, as those who say they are Jews and are not. Their feet run to evil. They have thoughts of iniquity, skipping on down. Verse 8, the way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. What do we do as members? Verse 11, we roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment that there is none, for salvation but is far from us. Verse 15, yea, truth fails, and he that parts from evil makes himself a prey. Verse 16, where, what time is this peri uh, speaking of? What time period? Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Remember Isaiah 51, there's no man among the sons that she has produced. We're talking about a time here when there's no real leadership in Jacob. The Edomites have taken over. They have broken the yoke of Jacob spiritually off their neck. Now they are in charge and they are walking on Zion as foxes, doing everything they can to destroy spiritual Jacob. 
verse 19, second half. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, remember Revelation 12? <coughs> the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. That is the leader of the two witnesses, Haggai 2, the last verse. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. So this is right at the end. And it's talking about weaving a spider's web right here at the end. Now let's tie one more thing in here. Daniel 11, 30 through 35. Daniel 11. And I want to pick it up in verse 30. Almost shocking to understand. This is talking about the beast power, the king of the world in that sense. Verse 30, For the ship, ships of Chittim or Rome shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. They're going to hate the church. The beast power and the church are going to become very prominent at the end. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Who has forsaken the Holy Covenant? The apparent Edomites and Worldwide Church of God have forsaken God's truth and His covenant. And the beast is going to have a conspiracy with those who have forsaken. An arm shall defend on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. So the beast and those who forsake the covenant will be working in tandem to place the abomination. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. So this is a confrontation right between the beast power and the church. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. So church members are going to be destroyed by the Edomites and the beasts. Some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even at the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So it gives you the time frame right at the end. But the Kachas have broken the yoke of Jacob from their neck. They are in charge. Edom will conspire with the beast as the daughter of Babylon to take the nations of Jacob into captivity. And Father Jacob's prophecy is well into being fulfilled just before the day of the Lord as the church, spiritual Jacob, is being destroyed. Yes, Matilda, I believe in conspiracies. The Bible is full of them, including this very specific one. Let me ask you a question. Would it impress you if the Pope stood in the Vatican and called fire from heaven? Would that sway you from God's truth? I highly doubt it. We expect that, don't we? Why would that impress us? What would it take to deceive, or almost deceive, the very elect, as Matthew 24 says? What if Joe Jr. called down fire from heaven in the auditorium, if he still has it? Would it make those in Worldwide Church of God happy they stayed there, thinking, hey, this is it? Some who left might decide to go back. The very elect could almost be deceived by such a thing, especially if the beast and he who forsook the covenant stood together and called fire from heaven. That would be a little more perplexing to a lot of God's people. 
Now, it may not happen this way. I'm just giving you a hypothetical just to make us think. But realize and know, brethren, the book of Obadiah in the Minor Prophets has everything to do with the New Testament church today. God wants us to know who our enemies are, or this book would not be here. So be aware. Edom is a deadly enemy of the church. Yet Deuteronomy 23.7 says not to despise the Edomite, for he is our brother. We cannot adopt the bitter, spiteful attitude of Esau in Hebrews 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, verse 18 of Obadiah says he will kill every last Edomite. Let me hasten to add, there might be truly converted people of Edomite blood in the church. Now, if they are converted, they are grafted into spiritual Israel and reckoned as Edomites, or not as Edomites, but as Israelites in the Israel of God. So don't worry about it. If you're converted and you have Edomite blood, so what? Christ said, love your enemies, do good to them who persecute you and spitefully use you. We may all, brethren, have some very heavy, serious repenting to do of attitudes and things we have said about the leadership of Worldwide Church of God. Because apparently there are blood brothers as Edomites. Now let's notice Isaiah 7, I mean Obadiah 17 here in closing. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. So once the Edomite does his destruction, God says, I am going to reward my people. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. For they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall be possessed Gilead, or Manasseh. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even to Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shepherd, shall possess the cities of the south. And Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So in the world tomorrow, or in the great white throne judgment more specifically, after Esau has been obliterated and Jacob has taken its inheritance, and we become saviors upon Mount Zion, healers of the breach, Isaiah 58, we will be called on to judge the Edomite when he is resurrected physically in righteousness and in justice, and in love and in mercy, no matter what they have done to us. So here's an attitude check for us. Christ said, love your enemies. Even though Edom will, has, and is about to form a conspiracy to destroy the church with the beast, and then the remnant of her seed who are left behind, as it says in Revelation 12, along with the entire physical nations of Israel, that they will destroy and take captive, and most of Israel will die in captivity. In spite of all this, we are to have Christ's attitude toward the Edomite. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The end of message.